that praise to God for who He is, for what He's done, and what He's going to do when He comes again. Now, we are in our series on Bible doctrines, and we've come today. Oh, there we go. We've got plenty of water now. Uh, we've come today to uh, eschatology. You say, what in the world is that? That's the idea of how it all ends. Uh, the amazing thing about the Bible message is it not only tells us how the world began, how it progresses, where it's going, but it also tells us how it's going to ultimately end in the future uh, so that it gives us confidence uh, that when we know the Lord, we can trust Him every step of the way for every day of our lives that God is on the throne and God is in control. Now, when we look at messages of Bible prophecy, they not only deal with what is going to happen in the future, but they also talk about who is coming in the future. And they point us to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that it's really ultimately all about Him. Now, in the meantime, we know prophetically the stage is set. Israel's back in the land. The Middle East is in crisis. Russia's angry. Uh, the global economy has already been invented. And weapons of mass destruction have already been invented. All of those things tell us the clock is ticking, time is moving on, and yet Jesus reminds us that ultimately nobody knows the day or the hour of His coming. Now, I've been in the ministry for over 50 years. I've heard every wild speculation and every possible date uh, for the coming of Christ. 1975, 76, 88, 92, 2000, 2011, uh, whatever. They're always what? Wrong. Because Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour of my coming, but my Father only. Uh, the Scripture says, uh, even the Son doesn't know. Now, how can Jesus be God and not know the time of His coming? Well, I'll explain that in a couple of minutes. In the meantime, He also said, the angels don't know. That means Satan doesn't know. Satan is a fallen angel. He does not know the date of the rapture. He can read the newspaper. He can read the Bible. He can make a guess, but it's no better than anybody else's guess. Don't fall for people setting dates. Now, I realize the older you are here today, the sooner you want Jesus to come back because you're running out of time. It's coming soon, isn't the Ed? I hope. The younger you are, you're in no hurry. My students at Liberty are like, he's not going to come too soon, is he? Why? Well, I'm not married. I don't want him to come before I get married. Uh, six months after they're married, they want to know, how soon is he coming? Uh, that changed. I, I like to remind them, a God who loves you enough to send His Son to the cross to die for your sins, loves you enough, He'll come back when the time is right. But as we talk about eschatology today, 
the doctrine we're focusing on, the term means last things. What are the final things, the last things that the Bible talks about? And we've been looking at uh, elements of the Thomas Road doctrinal statement. The statement on eschatology says, we affirm that the return of Christ for all believers is imminent. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. There are certain things predicted in the Bible that could happen before the rapture, but they don't have to happen before the rapture. That the rapture is an imminent event prophetically. The trumpet could sound, the archangel could shout, and boosh, we're out of here to the glory of God. That the return of Christ for believers, he's coming in the rapture for believers, not unbelievers. It's imminent to be followed by the time of tribulation. So that means this statement is a pre-tribulational statement. Jesus comes before the time of tribulation. And then the coming of Christ to establish his earthly kingdom is after the time of tribulation. So the coming of Christ is both pre-tribulational and pre-millennial. Jesus today in heaven rules spiritually in the hearts of believers. And we can say that we are part of his kingdom, but it's a spiritual kingdom. He is not yet on earth sitting on David's throne, ruling with a rod of iron in the millennial kingdom. That is yet to come in the future. So as we look at that statement uh, and we understand the details of it, I want to suggest to us this morning seven prophetic promises for every believer's future. If you know the Lord is your Savior, there are seven things God has promised will be a reality for every one of you that knows the Lord is your Savior. That ultimately, the message of Bible prophecy is good news for the believers. It's only bad news for the unbelievers. Promise number one, as we've already mentioned, is the promise of the rapture of the church. Uh, if you have your Bible, you might take it and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul made his way to the town of Thessalonica in Greece uh, in about 50 A.D. or so, less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. When he arrives in Thessalonica, there are no Christians. He preaches the gospel. Some people are saved. A church is planted. He only stays there three weeks, teaches them basic Bible doctrine, including the promise of the Lord's coming. And he leaves. Some months later, somebody had passed away in the church, and the question came up, have they missed the coming of Christ? And Paul writes back to them one of the earliest letters in the New Testament and says, no, they haven't missed it at all. Uh, go to 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant concerning those that have fallen asleep in death. We don't want you to grieve like the rest of men, unbelievers. For if we believe uh, that Jesus died and he rose again, well, how did Jesus rise? Literally, bodily, physically. He didn't just ooze out of the grave. It was a literal resurrection. So we also believe God will bring with Jesus those that have fallen asleep in Him. Now, at death, the believer's body goes to the grave, to the dust and the ashes of time. But your spirit goes where? To heaven to be with the Lord. So the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. At death, the believer goes to heaven to be with the Lord. But the body's still in the grave. At the time of the rapture, the spirit returns with Christ, and the body is resurrected. Now, people say to me sometimes, well, why do I have to come back and get my body? If I already died and went to heaven, isn't that good enough? No, because you would be a disembodied spirit for eternity. Your body is going to be resurrected in a glorified state, reunited with your spirit. So he says, according to the Lord's own word, we who are still alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will not precede those that have died, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Not all the dead, only the dead in Christ at the rapture. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, in most English Bibles, the rapture term is translated caught up or caught away, etc. And we'll meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, believers sometimes disagree or differ on the timing of the rapture, but you cannot disagree on the fact of the rapture. Despite that, you'll sometimes hear people say, there's never going to be a rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible. I'll look in the concordance. You can't find the word rapture. Well, the word Bible is not in the Bible, uh, but we believe the Bible. Uh, the 66 inspired books collected in one volume. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we believe in the triunity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with co-equal attributes of deity. Uh, the word Sunday is not in the Bible, but we're meeting on a Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, which happens to be a Sunday. So Sunday is a resurrection celebration. The concept can be in the Bible, whether or not the English term is in the Bible. Uh, in fact, the term for the rapture, as Paul wrote this originally in Greek, in the Greek New Testament, is the word harpazo. 
Harpazo means caught up, snatched up, seized, taken from one place to another. Uh, it, it even involves a violent seizure. Jesus said that he would come like a what? Thief in the night, steal the bride away to heaven before he declares war on the world. Now, in the meantime, Jesus said there will be wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. So every time there's a crisis, as the one going on right now in Europe, everybody wants to know, is this the big one? Is this Armageddon? There's a very simple answer, no. Uh, and uh, uh, is this the end of the world? No. Uh, none of that's going to happen until after the rapture. But if the trumpet sounds and the archangel shouts and millions of believers are suddenly gone and you're left behind, that's not good. Uh, that means something went wrong. The promise of the rapture is for the believer. Now, the timing issue, you have to put it before the tribulation, after the tribulation, before the millennium, after the millennium, or stick it at the end of time, but you have to put it somewhere. You say, well, why does Thomas Rode hold a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, uh, the timing issue? That was the view of Dr. Falwell, uh, Elmer Towns, Harold Wilmington, uh, myself, that's the view of David Jeremiah, Robert Jeffress, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, Jack Graham, ad infinitum, uh, etc. Why are all of us convinced the rapture has to come before the time of tribulation? People will say, well, the church has always suffered trouble and tribulation and difficulty and persecution. Right. The wrath of man, yes. The wrath of Satan, yes. But not the wrath of God. The church, the bride of Christ, is not the object of God's wrath. When Jesus died on the cross and the Father poured our sin on him and he shouts, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God fell on him in that moment. Jesus took the wrath for us. That's why the next chapter says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, of believers, we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation. We deserve the wrath of God, but we do not receive the wrath of God because Jesus loved us and died in our place. There's an old hymn that says what? Jesus paid it how much? All. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Could I remind you this morning? Nobody loves you like Jesus loves you. Nobody died for your sins. Nobody else has risen from the dead to give you the gift of eternal life. And nobody else is coming in the future to take you home to heaven to escape the wrath of God that is coming on the world in the time of tribulation. When you read the book of Revelation, it's the wrath of the Lamb. 
and the wrath of God the Father poured out on an unbelieving world. You and I deserve it, but will not receive it. Number two, we are looking forward to the time when he takes the bride in the rapture home to the Father's house. On the last night before Jesus went to the cross, he celebrated the Passover with the disciples. And he took two elements of the Passover meal, the bread to symbolize his body, the cup to symbolize his blood, and told them to do that in remembrance of him. He institutes the Lord's Supper, the communion service. Afterwards, Judas the betrayer leaves the room. The unbeliever goes out into the night. And Jesus turns to the 11 believing disciples only in John 14 and says to them, I'm about to go back to the Father's house. And if I go, I will come again. Every Christian denomination affirms the second coming of Christ. Baptists, Methodists, Catholics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Pentecostals, Charismatics, we all believe Jesus is one day coming again. They may differ on the when, the how, and the time, but we must affirm that he will return because he said he would. And then he said to those disciples, I'm going to go to the Father's house and prepare a place for you. And he's going to use that little pronoun you seven times in that passage. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again for you, that where I am there you may be also, etc. It's a personalized promise only for believers. Now, the picture is the Father's house is one great gigantic house, and in it are palatial rooms, and all of us as believers are ultimately headed there as brothers and sisters in the family of God. As, as Jesus explains this, he's using the illustration, the word picture of a first century Jewish wedding. And his disciples would have understood that. The pattern of the Jewish wedding was that the groom and the bride are betrothed to one another in a permanent binding commitment. But then having made the commitment, the groom leaves and goes to his father's house. The bride remains at her father's house. In the meantime, the groom goes to his father's house to prepare a room for he and the bride to live in. If they're a wealthy family, a large room. Really wealthy, several rooms. Really, really wealthy, his own house. But he's got to go and prepare it while she waits at her house. Ultimately, the father authorizes the groom to return to get the bride. That's why Jesus said, nobody knows the time except my father only. Obviously, if Jesus is God and has a divine omniscience, he knows when he's coming back, 
but he also knows the father has to give the authorization. The father has to tell him, it's time, go get the bride in the rapture. Resurrect the dead, rapture the living, catch them up together, and bring the bride to the father's house. In the meantime, you and I are the bride waiting here on earth in the earthly house, serving the Lord while the groom prepares the room and the father authorizes the return. Now, let me suggest something. If God could speak the world into existence in six days, and it's as beautiful as it is even under the curse of sin, imagine what those rooms will be like. He's been working on it for nearly 2,000 years. It's beyond our imagination. A palatial room just perfectly designed for you as a believer. We go up in the rapture to go to the Father's house. Number three, we're headed to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, in the great white throne judgment, he'll judge the unbelievers. But at the judgment seat of Christ, the Scripture says this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear, writing to believers, before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may be repaid for those things that were done in the body. In other words, after salvation, as an act of worship and devotion and dedication, what we've done to serve the Lord, God keeps the record book. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you'll receive your rewards for service. Now, we know that we're not saved by our good deeds. We're saved by grace through what? Faith. Uh, and not of good works, not of ourselves. It's the grace of God. But because we're saved, then the passage that quotes that in Ephesians goes on to say, but we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, for we are His workmanship. And it's the word poema in Greek from which we get the word poetry. You are God's poem. God is writing a masterpiece in your life. And every act of service is not done to earn salvation. It's done as an appreciation for salvation. Our good works are the fruit of our salvation, but not the root of it. The root is grace, the process is faith, and the fruit of it is our service to the Lord. That means that uh, every time you share your faith with somebody else, God keeps the record book. Every time you do an act of service uh, in the name of Christ, God keeps the record book. Uh, there's an interesting passage in Matthew that says, whoever assists the prophet shares in the prophet's reward. So everything you do to uh, help Pastor Jonathan uh, and the pastors of the church in their ministry, God keeps the record book. You don't have to be the preacher. 
Some of you assist by working on the parking lot, uh, by serving as an usher, by working in Sunday school, by preparing the coffee, the donuts, uh, whatever, by preparing the lesson, by working with children, uh, by working with teenagers. That's a double reward. Uh, you're busy serving the Lord, and God keeps the record book. Now, I did not have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. I was born and raised in Detroit in a non-Christian home. My parents were eighth grade dropouts. They were sincere, they were hardworking, but they didn't know anything about God. There was no God, no Jesus, no Bible, no church in our home. Say, so how in the world did you get saved? A Baptist church, a lot like this one, built a new building a few blocks from our home, sent out a flyer advertising Daily Vacation Bible School. How many of you have worked in Daily Vacation Bible School here at Thomas Road? Lots of you. God's keeping the record book. And I went there. My mother sent me. She didn't even take me. It was the 1950s. Kids were tough. Parents were even tougher. She said, go down the street. There it is. Uh, you know, don't get hit by a car. You'll be fine. Uh, and I went. And I heard that Jesus loved me, that He died for my sins, that He rose from the dead, that He was coming again, that I could have a home in heaven forever, and it was free. I raised my hand in the invitation. I'm like, yes, that's a good deal. I'm ready to trust that. Fortunately, the lady that dealt with me was very thorough and very clear. Her name was Mrs. Johnson. I only have one picture of her. Uh, she sat me down and said, kid, I want you to understand something. We're not talking about Santa Claus. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're talking about His payment for your sins. Are you ready to put your faith and trust in what He did for you on the cross when He died for your sins and when He rose from the dead and trust Him forever? Now, I realize not every childhood profession is the real thing. For me, it really was, and for many kids it is. I went home knowing I'd been saved. My parents didn't have a clue what that meant. Later, they would come to faith. But I've often thought about Mrs. Johnson. She's in heaven now. She had no idea as she led kids to Christ year after year in vacation Bible school what those kids would do in serving the Lord. For this kid, she had no idea he'll teach one day in the world's largest Christian university. He'll teach over 100,000 students in 30 years. He'll write 50 books. He'll travel all over the world preaching the gospel. Whatever reward I get is undeserved. It's the grace of God but she will share in that. And so will you. Everything you've done is an act of service to the Lord. God keeps the record book, and at the judgment seat of Christ, you will receive your rewards. Uh, the judgment seat is called the bema seat in Greek, the place where rewards are given for faithful service. 
You've got to go up in the rapture to go to the Father's house, to go to the judgment seat of Christ, which obviously takes place in heaven. And number four, we're headed to the marriage of the Lamb. You have a marriage in your future. I don't care if you've never been married or how many times you've been married, you're going to be married again. Uh, Revelation 19. You might turn there in your Bible, right toward the end of the Bible, Revelation, the 19th chapter. It opens with four hallelujahs, even as the choir just sang to us. And then it says in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Well, who's the bride of Christ? The church. We are. So the bride has to go up to heaven to go to the marriage. Now, the marriage is symbolic of our union with Christ, but then notice what he says. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to the bride to wear the white robe of righteousness, so that in salvation, God not only forgives your sin, that would leave you blank. He gives you the righteousness of Christ that we do not deserve and cannot earn. It's a free gift of God's grace. Uh, think of it this way. As a professor up at Liberty, when my students begin a new class, they're academically innocent. They have no grades. They haven't passed the class, but they haven't flunked the class. After a while, let's assume somebody has all Fs. I could be a very merciful professor and say, look, I'm going to forgive all your Fs and wipe them out. Now, we're a fully accredited university, so I can't really do that, but we'll use that for the illustration. Even if I forgave all your Fs, have you passed the class? No, you're blank. I'd have to give you an A-plus instead. God's grace is so great, He not only forgives our failures, He gives us the A. He gives us the righteousness of Christ, symbolized by the white robe, the righteousness of the saints or the believers. And then from the wedding, number five, we go with Him back to the earth in the triumphal return. Just because we believe we're going up in the rapture doesn't mean we're just going to escape the planet. No, we're actually coming back to the planet uh, with Christ. Uh, he goes on to say uh, in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and a white horse and the rider appears who's called the Word of God. And then look at verse 14. This is your verse. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in what? Fine linen, white and clean. Where did they get that? Verse 8, at the marriage. We go from the marriage in heaven back to earth with Christ at the triumphal return. We return with him to the battle of Armageddon. He speaks the word, slays the army of the Antichrist, throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, binds Satan in the abyss, and then 
we reign and rule with Him, number six, in His millennial kingdom on earth. Millennial simply means a thousand years. And six times it will say that the kingdom will last for a thousand years. And yet people say, I think maybe it's just symbolic. Well, why does it say a thousand years six times? Uh, It has a beginning point and an ending point. Satan's bound in the abyss, locked down, lid sealed, can't get out, cannot deceive the nations. There's no way we're already in the millennium. It has not yet occurred. All of these other things have to transpire first. And during that time, if Jesus is literally here on earth ruling, every school will be a Christian school. Every hospital will be a Christian hospital. The message of the gospel will go to the whole world. But as wonderful as it is, it's not heaven. It's not the end. Promise number seven is the eternal city. Pastor Jonathan talked about it so eloquently last week. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It represents the final state of sinless glorification, that all of us are there redeemed, saved, glorified, transformed. There's no sin. There's no jealousy. There's no competition. There's no tension. Now, Christian fellowship is wonderful. Uh, There's nothing like it on the planet. Uh, And you experience it here uh, every Sunday. But we're not in heaven yet. You could still get run over on the parking lot trying to get to your car. But in heaven, there is no pain there is no sorrow, there is no crying, there is no sin. But there are certain people, this passage says, that will not be in heaven. Cowards will not be there. Well, I'm kind of afraid to give my life to Christ. Then you won't be there. The unbelievers will not be there. People ask me all the time, why wouldn't God just let everybody into heaven? Believers and unbelievers. Because if you let unbelievers into heaven, it wouldn't be heaven, and they wouldn't be happy. You're going to let Hitler in, he'll kill the Jews. You're going to let Putin in, he'll kill the Ukrainians. Uh, Whatever, no. Unbelievers are not going to be there. The abominable murderers, the immoral sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Now, you could be saved out of any of those conditions, but you cannot go into heaven unrepentant, shaking your fist at God, saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. Take me. Now, only those who finally come to respond to His invitation. And when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it ends with an invitation. Chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride, the church, say what? Come. Prophecy is not written to scare us. It's written to invite us. Come to Christ while there's hope, while there's time. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the communion service. It's an open table for all believers that if you know the Lord is your Savior, you're to participate in it to remember His body and blood until He, what? Comes. We do it in anticipation of the return of Christ. 
But if you've never trusted him as your savior, if you've never said yes to him, I'll trust your death as a sufficient payment for my sin. I'll trust your resurrection to give me the gift of eternal life. Could I urge you, no more important time to do that than right now. Bow your head with me for a moment and take a minute of reflection. First of all, as a believer, to thank God for all that he's done for you and all that he's prepared for you in your future. And maybe if you've never come to that point of faith, I'd remind you the invitation of Scripture is very direct, that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And before we pass the elements, perhaps this is the day that you would say, yes, Jesus, I'm ready to trust you as my personal Savior. I want to receive these seven promises about the future by trusting you for my future. Pray that by faith. Pray it in Jesus' name. Pray it with the confidence of an amen. God will hear you, and God will answer. As Pastor Scott comes and leads us in this time of the communion celebration, let it be a time that reminds us we're headed to the Father's house where we'll be in communion with Christ forever and ever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you. As you came in this morning, you should have received the cup. If you, if you didn't and you would like to participate, uh, just raise your hand and we'll have one of our ushers um, pass that out to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is giving some instructions to the church at Corinth about uh, communion. And then in verse 23, we read this together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As the church, we are in this season known as Lent, the 40 days leading up to uh, the resurrection, the Easter Sunday that we celebrate. We're 18 days into that. And we remember the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary and that on the third day he rose from the dead, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And at the end of that passage that we were just reading, Paul reminds us, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, the Lord is coming. He is coming. And until then, both through the, the taking of communion, but also through the proclamation that our Savior 
is alive. We should be about God's business of doing that. I want to remind you as you leave today, will you pick up one of those invite cards and pass it out to your neighbors and your friends and remind them that Easter is coming. The Lord is alive. God bless you all. You are dismissed. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this journey of faith in Jesus Christ. So send us an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, well, we're here to help you. So just reach out to us. We'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. And if you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, then go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.